Hello and welcome to the second Silmarillion Film Project of 2022. And very exciting tonight, we have the whole gang. In addition to myself, the co-host Dave Kale, and as always, the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. We're joined by both Marie and Nick, the uh, showrunners and head writers, and the uh, creative minds that really drive this whole thing. <laughs> or at least keep it on the rails. Uh, yes, that's true. Yeah, that's the point, drive More we accurate. have. Steering, <laughs> not always great. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it, it's exciting. Nick, we missed you last time. And, that's uh, right. We had we did. a really fun discussion about Sauron. That, um, that Sauron and Thorin Gwethel. Yeah. You would have mm-hmm. absolutely been additive to. But we're glad you're here tonight uh, for that's us to, to talk about Dorthonian and maybe even uh, get into Glaurung, another awesome bad guy. Exactly. We still we do still have some Sauron stuff to polish up, right? We got to figure out um, how to reconcile the story of Sauron that we've devised, which focuses primarily on uh, on Tolsirian, right? Primarily on uh, towering in uh, Tol in Gaurahoth. and. Um, I think about the Dorthonian phase, uh, the hunt for Baron and all of that stuff, which is explicitly run by Sauron in the book. Do we want to keep that? If we do, how do we fit that with the Sauron story that we have? If not, what else do we do? So that's the first, our first big question. Then we'll see if we can round off the rest of the villains tonight. We'll see. That would be ambitious, but Hey, who knows? Um, so, um, uh, anyway, a, a couple quick announcements. First, we're it's near the very end of January, which means two things uh, in Signum World for folks to keep in mind. The first is that uh, February space modules start next week, uh, so that means it is there is still time to sign up for our space modules. I have them hidden over here somewhere. Oh, here it is. There it is. Yeah, we got there our space web page here, and you can scroll down. You see these are the modules that are coming up here. I could probably even like make it legible. That would be fun. Um, so uh, there we are. The modules that we have running in February. Um, we're continuing our Latin and our Old English classes. We got a, a group of folks who are working their way through Latin and Old. English, um, learning uh, learning those languages. Uh, we have Are You Tolkien to Me by Sarah Brown, which is uh, about Tolkien's connection to the modern world and how people in the modern world connect themselves to Tolkien. A lot of times, you know, people think about, especially people who don't know Tolkien, think about like, man, that's kind of... Um, this is kind of out of touch with the modern world, isn't it? Um, and of course, many people don't find it so. So kind of exploring those uh, those connections and how Tolkien links to the modern world is sort of what those discussions are about. Um, our uh, first fairy tales survey, uh, uh, Pilar Barrera is going to be talking about um, fairy tales from multiple different traditions, looking at um, uh, a, a bunch of different things in there from from apples to bears, the beginning of the alphabet, uh, uh, she's doing there. Um, fairy tale tradition, really, really fascinating. Of course, something that was enormously influential uh, to Tolkien and his thinking. And our advanced old English class. These are the modules that are happening in February, so we want to want to bring those to uh, people's attention. And of course, we have these are our candidates for March, so it's still possible uh, to jump in and essentially vote. Uh, you can you can select if you're interested in one of these other modules like you want to learn Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, you want to um, read, the, uh, read and discuss uh, the, the uh, award-winning novel The Three-Body Problem, uh, Chinese science fiction, um, uh, more fairy tales, uh, some Miyazaki, some Japanese anime, um, uh, Tolkien and Alchemy, uh, which is a really, uh, a really fun Tolkien module. 
Uh, Reader's Theater on the Tempest. We've got so many things going on. Uh, so you can do some Shakespeare Reader's Theater, uh, some Shakespeare's fantasy stuff, creative writing uh, workshop, of course. Um, all kinds of options, uh, for, and these are for March. So uh, the, all you have to do is buy a space token. So you buy a token, and the tokens, you can cash those in for modules whenever you want. Um, they never expire. So you just buy a, a, you know, a token or two. Um, uh, you can give one away. You can, you can give them away. You can use them yourself. You can you know, use them for yourself and a friend. And then you can uh, tell us which modules you're really excited to take in March. And uh, then we can uh, make sure that we run those, um, or you can sign right up for the ones that are definitely running in February. So that's how space works. Wanted to bring that to folks' attention, because as I said, February modules start next week. In addition, um, MythMoot 9 is coming up soon at the end of June, and we have our early bird pricing like we do every year, but that ends on Monday at the end of January. So um, you have uh, only a few days left to sign up for MythMoot at a reduced uh, price. You can still sign up afterwards, but it's going to cost a little bit more. So early bird pricing ends on Monday. Um, and so especially, um, can, like we've actually reduced the prices of MythMoot pretty significantly this year. Um, so compared to, you know, uh, previous year's prices, the early bird prices this year are a huge savings compared to previous years. So anyway, just wanted to make sure that everybody knew about early bird pricing before we move on from that. Now, speaking of moving on, back to Dorthonian. So um, I've already explained the basic sort of issue, right? We know um, the beginning of Baron's story. Now, we've already met Baron, like, so not actually the total beginning of his story, right? The, be- the beginning of the Baron and Luthien story proper is with Baron living with his father Barahir and the small band of outlaws in Dorthonian and causing trouble, right? Um, and this is going to... so. We need to lay out the framework here. Now, we're not going to be focused exactly on Baron and what he's doing yet. We're going to talk about Baron's story later on. Um, uh, with Baron and Luthien in the Baron and Luthien season, we're doing a like best for last kind of thing. We're, we're, we're setting everything else up and making sure we understand all the other rest of the pieces. And then we'll talk about the main story so we can see how those can be fitted in. Um, but um, the real que- the big question is, when the outlaws are hunted down, like as I said in the book, it's explicitly Sauron who brings an army into Dorthonian after, well, after Baron personally, when it's only Baron at the end, right? But it's, it's uh, uh, Sauron who does the whole, um, uh, you know, the, the deception of, of uh, Gorlim and uh, all this stuff is, is initiated by Sauron. So the first and big question is, do we keep that? Do we keep that? Do we keep Sauron as the primary worker there? So let's look at some of the um, our villain goals here. What's going on in Dorthonian? Let's try to make sure we're understanding the context here, right? Um, so uh, what are the goals of the enemy, of the bad guys in Dorthonian? Uh, one, occupation. Right, this used to be one of the really kind of the keystone of the, um, you know, the the leaguer of Angband. Right, it's the the central piece that faces right against the gates. Um, so, if that can be held against the good guys, right? If the if the bad guys can maintain a hold on Dorthonian, then it 
prevents any possibility, uh, especially, of course, with Sauron and Tulsirian. With those two things, you've got it's impossible ever to wall Morgoth in again. And, of course, the gateway to southern Beleriand is is, is wide open. Um, and that's, of course, point three, expansion south into Beleriand. Uh, so maintaining um, uh, Dorthonian is a really important point um, as we move south towards Doriath. Also, exploitation of resources, right? That would be something else that would be happening um, as uh, uh, we don't... Tolkien doesn't talk about this kind of thing much. I, I, this is never... Well... I won't say never. Rarely one of the things that he involves in stories. Not not never, but rarely one of the things that he involves in his stories. But nevertheless, it must have happened, right? As uh, Frodo explains, orcs don't live on foul air and poison, right? They eat and drink like other things, like other creatures. So um, they have to be eating something, and they are, uh, and they also, like the dwarves, will have need of wood. So there are lots of ways in which Dorthonian can, and of course, and Falgwith, not so very rich in resources, uh, uh, either wood or food these days. Um, so Dorthonian would be useful in that way, too. We've got the road in the Pass of Anach. Um, so if we go back to the map for a second, right, we have, of course, again, Tolsirian guarding the major pass down here. But uh, the Pass of Anach gives not only another route from the north straight down, um, uh, but it also gives a different one, right? Like right down the Pass of Anach into Dimbar and right down here ready to mess with Doriath, right? So if uh, the bad guys were to want to make an offensive down into this direction, um, having these two routes into southern Beleriand makes it very, very difficult uh, to prevent them doing what they're trying to do. Um, And amidst, you know, uh, uh, among all of these policies, we have Barahir's band causing trouble. Right, um, they're really the only thing that's standing between Morgoth's forces and complete control uh, of Dorthonian. Now, um, mastering Dorthonian, who does it and why? So again, I'm thinking about Sauron, and on the one hand, I mean, I know whenever we deviate from the text. Obviously, we have to have a reason to do that, right? You know, we, we, there's, we're not just going to toss that out the window. Um, I would give both a sort of a positive, there's like positive and negative reasons, I think, that could justify. I'm not saying we necessarily have to do it, but um, one, we have other options. Um, as the characters have developed in our story, um, we see Gothmog in battles in the book, right? But we don't see anybody, like, any other strategists. you see what I mean? Like, that in the text as it is currently published, there are very, like, who else could it be besides Sauron, right? Uh, to some extent, it's almost like to say that it was done by the bad guys suggests that, you know, Sauron as loot, and unless you're saying that Morgoth himself is coming uh, uh, over it, we're never told any other lieutenants that, uh, that Morgoth has to whom he assigns tasks like this. 
Um, there's Glaurung, of course, but Glaurung doesn't seem to be in this business yet. Before, I mean, again, we'll see him do that later with Glaurung, right? And this, of course, is one of the reasons why we have to answer the Glaurung question because Tolkien never does. Glaurung comes out when Glaurung comes out the first time; it's premature, right? He's Glaurung's like going to get grounded after that. He's in trouble for going out too early. Um, when he goes out in the Dagor Bragalak, it's not too early. Like, it's, it's Glaurung time now, right? But Glaurung is still not necessarily at his peak, right? Uh, but still, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, prime time, like, uh, you know, his early prime for, uh, for, for Glaurung at the Neonite Arnoidiad and thereafter is when Glaurung is really at the top of his game, right? And begins to be one of the primary forces ruling over all Balerion. But what's he doing in between the two, right? What does he do? after the Dagor Bragalach and before the Near Nyth Arnoidiad. And to be frank, why doesn't he do more, right? Uh, you know, that's just... Now, when trying to answer that que- that sort of question, when you're reading the book, why doesn't Glaurung do more? Um, well, this that the stories that come in between aren't Glaurung stories. I, I mean, that's pretty simple. Like the Turin story is the Glaurung story. And that happens after the New Night Arnoidiad. And thus, we don't really learn much about Glaurung. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's important to remember. We've talked often about how a lot of the changes that we have made are necessitated by the fact that we're telling a very different kind of narrative. Like we're telling a different kind of story. Um, we're doing things with characters that Tolkien was making no attempt to do. He's not writing a novel. The Silmarillion isn't a novel, right? It's not designed to tell stories in that way, in that style. Um, And we're doing something in a very different style, and so there are questions that we need answers to that the book just doesn't give and isn't interested in giving because we're, uh, by necessity, changing the genre uh, as um, as we're adapting it. But there's another element that we haven't talked about as much that I think is very relevant here. And that is, it is also not a novel in the sense that Tolkien didn't sit down and write it from one end to the next. It's a collection of stories, which were written separately and not always in the order in which they're presented chronologically at the end, which they've been put together. Now, Tolkien did think of them as a a, a history. I mean, it's not that he didn't ever himself uh, piece them together as some kind of conti- continuous story. He did, but that's not how they emerged. And so, therefore, the question, like the one I was just asking, what was Glaurung up to in between the two wars, in, in between those two battles, isn't a question that is central to Tolkien's process, right? The Baron and Luthien story is the story that comes in between those two battles. And when he's sitting down to write the Baron and Luthien story, the question, okay, what's Glaurung doing during this? Was totally off his radar screen. This wasn't a Glaurung story, right? It was a separate story, which didn't involve the dragon, so we don't know anything about the dragon, right? Um, anyway, so, but what, do we know something about? Sauron, right? Sauron has a role in this story. We know that he's involved, so we have a bad guy captain involved in Dorothonian. Sauron, obviously. Who else is it going to be? The wolf, right? I mean, there's like, within the context of the Baron and Luthien story as a sort of quasi-standalone story, which is how Tolkien kind of began it, there aren't any other candidates. The dragon's not a character in this story. Gothmog isn't a character in this story, right? 
Sauron is, Karkaroth is, Draugluin is, there's a relatively limited cast. So naturally, the role of Hunter of Baron is given to Sauron. And that's why, in, in my mind, it seems almost um, a kind of default answer, you know? Uh, if that's the right way to... I mean, like... And I don't think we necessarily need to default to that same answer that uh, in that context because we are telling the story as one contiguous, uh, you know, developing organic story um, from end to end in a way that Tolkien, Tolkien never wrote the story in that way ever. Even when he was putting it together, he didn't write it in that way. Um, they're still separated. Nick, you've been wanting to say something for a while and been very patient. No, it's... Um, it's... The, the most important thing here, I think, would be to determine it because whoever we're set, it, we would be setting that up comes across as a personal antagonist of Baron in a lot yes. of ways. Yes. And is the story set up better by having this kind of secondary antagonism going right. on, um, which essentially cuts Sauron out of the main thread, the main thrust of the story, right? Um, Certainly from like the beginning, he's not part of the, I mean, this is the beginning of the story, right? Right. The beginning of the Baron and Luthien story. So if Sauron isn't involved in the beginning of the story, then from the, like, if you just consider the Baron and Luthien story, he becomes this like episode in the middle only. Right, right. right. And we could be telling a separate story with him that, that cross connects with the Baron and Luthien story. We could definitely do that. Yeah. Um, um, But it would separate him out. Um, And of course, you know, Glaurung is, I I was thinking of Glaurung when you were talking about him, about how Tolkien didn't have to figure out because obviously Mithros isn't just going to allow this dragon to hang out behind his lines. <laughs> right, right. Comfortably in this castle that they need right. in order to use the road again. Right. So something has to, something's got to give there. Either, you know, somebody's got to get, um, get Glaurung out of, out of there. He has to be recalled. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if he is recalled, he could potentially wind up getting involved in other stuff. In, in the season because it would be kind of awkward to introduce him early in the season. Exactly. For exactly the reason you were saying, I mean, it would be, to to bring the dragon in as the villain, like if Glaurung is responsible for killing, you know, uh, uh, Baron's father, Right. And then the dragon exits stage left and never comes back into the story. I mean, that's like so much worse than having a gun on stage that never gets fired. Like, I mean, it's it's a completely unfulfilled story. And I, I think that you're really right. And that's one thing that I, I, I agree. It's really important for us to think about um, that. Um, I tend, especially because I've been kind of invested in the Sauron story that we've been building, and. Um, so I haven't been thinking about the way that this incident, the um, Dorthonian sequence, really does frame the story. Um, even I guess, even down to the you killed my father thing, right? I mean, like, not that 
you know, Baron's obviously not going all full Inigo Montoyo on, on this, but he's still going to, I mean, like there's a villain responsible for killing his dad, you know, and it obviously can't be just a villain who wanders in, kills his dad and wanders off, you know, like that's, that's, that would be really unsatisfying. Um, Especially if it's a super spectacular villain like the dragon, you know, I mean, that would be an enormous letdown to bring in the dragon at the beginning would make it seem like, okay, this is a dragon story. I mean, we'd be like, you know, broadcasting. This is a dragon story. And uh, if it turns out to be an utterly dragon neutral story, then, you know, like that's weird. Very, very weird. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, ooh, ouch. Angel Eyes says that would be kind of like dropping Arya Stark out of a tree to face Jon Snow's arch enemy. Um, yeah, arguably, it would be a little bit like that. Um, and, uh, presumably, we wouldn't want that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one thing you did mention, though, about the idea of um, Baron wanting to, you know, get vengeance against the guy who killed his dad. He is going to go and directly kill the orc who was responsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, so he will, he'll yeah. get that out of the way right off. Like, okay, right. I killed the guy who killed my dad. But right. then he ends up later on imprisoned by Sauron. So if Sauron gave the orders and then he's like meeting the guy there, that's like, oh, that's worse. And then later in the story, he's going to sneak into Angband and come face to face with Morgoth, who gave all the orders to whoever we put in Dorthurian. Yeah. Like, yeah. so as Baron's story progresses, he is going to meet he's, he's the working power up the behind the throne. Yeah. 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 The whole yeah. So yeah. we could structure the story in such a way that we build up to the parts so of Sauron's in the middle and we see how Baron interacts with him as the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. Like we could we could do that. Yeah. But I I wouldn't think we would want to do that and completely remove Sauron from the beginning because Sauron would still have to be the guy giving the orders to the person responsible on some level. So if it's Theron Gwethel doing the Gorlim thing, then what's Theron Gwethel doing there? Well, probably Sauron. So, you know, like there has to be some kind of connection back to Sauron. Right, right. And, yeah. And we yeah. have to be careful not to lean too heavily into the vengeance aspect because yeah, it's absolutely. pretty clear from the, from the story that, yes, he does confront people at higher and higher levels of Morgoth's organization of evil, Right. But that's not at any point the stated like that's no, not what he's no. after, yeah. right? That's yeah. incidental to what's act what he's actually after, which is Luthien. Right, exactly, and I and I, I I like the way that that like concept of progression gets uh, neutralized in the latter half by the fact that Morgoth is not the final villain. It, it's then the wolf, and then mortality right so like it's 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 definitely not a like okay now you've confronted morgoth and this is the final boss right of the whole show like it's not he's not i mean he is the final boss but that's not how baron's storyline runs right so i think we we have plenty of opportunity to kind of prevent it from just looking like he's climbing up the ladder and and as you say trying to take down the you know the enemy architecture you know and uh, uh, uh leadership hierarchy or whatever um yeah, this is no. not Shadows of Mordor. This is not Shadows of Mordor. It is uh, uh, truer words were never spoken. So, um, <laughs> in, in, in almost no way is it Shadows of Mordor. Um, yes. So, I so I confess myself to be of two minds. 
or let me, well, let me say the same thing a different way. I feel a tension here. I feel a struggle, right? Because on the one hand, I am totally down with what you guys are saying, or at least suggesting about how it can be made very, from the sake of the, from the perspective of the structure of the overall season story, right? Especially the way that we've been kind of talking about having um, the destruction of um, Sauron's, the overthrowing of Sauron and the destruction of his tower be something like the central turning point of the season. Um, It would make a whole lot of sense to have Sauron be the villain at the beginning, from Baron's storyline, so that he, when he is finally imprisoned by Sauron, um, we see this as like the continuation and then the conclusion of that storyline, right? So we've got a we've got a, a genuine Sauron as antagonist of Baron thread, which begins with the Dorthonian hunt, escalates through the imprisonment and then Finrod's sacrifice, and then is culminated you catastrophically by the arrival of Huan and Luthien and her destruction of the tower um, uh, in this sort of uh, unforeseen, certainly unforeseen by Baron resolution of this, uh, uh, of that plot line. By itself, that's really compelling and I'm completely sold on that. But the tension that I'm feeling is that the Dorthonian hunt doesn't feel like Sauron to me. And we talked about this a couple sessions ago, Marie, and you, we were, I was agreeing with you. You were saying, well, like, the whole false island elf thing and the deception of Gorlim does feel very Sauron, and I totally agree. That, that incident has a very Sauron, uh, and by Sauron, I mean our Sauron, right? The film film Sauron. Um, uh, it has a very film film Sauron-esque feel to it. But that's the only part of it, right? The idea of Sauron... At the head of an army of orcs who are scouring the country, you know, like, that's so blunt instrument um, compared to, like, that Sauron would even take an army of orcs. It just, it A, does not, the whole operation, as it's described in the text, doesn't feel like our Sauron and exactly how he would do those things. But more importantly, it seems like a distraction from his main storyline, which is all focused on the necromancy and, uh, and... Uh, you know, the pot of evil and um, Tol and Garahoth. Um, so how do we introduce that without making it sound from the perspective of... Now, again, it works well with Baron's story, but from the perspective of Sauron's plot arc, it seems like a side quest for him. And that, and, and so that's that's the tension that I'm feeling, that it doesn't, like the way it's described in the book, doesn't feel like it fits him. And, it, and I would like... For the sake of, like, the purity of his plot arc, I'd, I'd rather he didn't do it, right? I'd rather he just stayed focused on Tol and Garahoth, and then, you know, uh, Baron wanders into his web, and then we get the, the incident at the middle. But I do love what Sauron's involvement at the beginning does to Baron's plot line, and the way that that shapes the whole first half of the season. I think that's really attractive. Also, P.S., I can't think of anybody else who would be good to do it. I mean... The second candidate, right? I mean, if it's not Sauron, if we're going to put somebody else in charge of an army of orcs scouring Dorthonian, there's only one obvious candidate, right? And that's Bulldog, obviously, right? Bulldog is the blunt instrument who would just, like, take a big old army of orcs and, and uh, like, 
turn over rocks and beat on things until they found... Uh, but of course, then the, the whole Gorlim thing does not sound like Bulldog. Not to mention the fact, do we want to introduce Bulldog as like the, you know, Baron's initial antagonist? We'd have to resolve that uh, if we did, because I, I agree with you there. So not a huge fan of that either. So I need help. Uh Maybe we could reconcile this tension somehow. Is there are ways we could solve? Do you see what I'm talking about with the tension there? Do you, do you see the, the issues, the problems that I'm having here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about well, uh, <clears throat> what about like Bulldog and Thuringwethel is there with them? Hmm. Thuringwethel is deputy. Go ahead, uh, sorry, Nick, I interrupt you. Go ahead. No, what do you think, Nick? Well, there's there's a few things going. I, I of course it did occur to me that it would be kind of funny to instead of actually using the name Thu as the name for um Sauron. for Sauron to have to have uh Gorlim try to warn Baron about <laughs> the necromancer Thu and getting yanked, <laughs> yanked it to He must have died while carving it. it. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Thu, yeah. Um, it was and, Thu oh, yeah, well. right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. obviously that's, hilarious. that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, oh, oh yeah. He, they, yeah. Well, there's a few things. If what if Dorthonian is a gift to Sauron? Like Morgoth doesn't want it to be his problem, and Dorth, so he hands ah, over. So it's like the his running of right. Yeah. Of yeah. the running of Dorthonian, because there are still humans who are, who are living in the hills there, not just Baron here and his band of outlaws, but all the any of the leftover humans who failed to escape with the other right. men of Eladros. Um And these are these it, we have set up in our story that these people are the reason why Baron here has remained in right. Dorthonian is to help protect and help uh, protect and um, extract. Those people, you know, wherever he can. Um, And so if essentially, um, if we set up Sauron as the sheriff of Nottingham, essentially, over Dorthonian, then he has a vested interest in in keeping the peace, even if he's not personally on the ground right. involved. It in the certainly hunt. makes more sense of how he would delegate that if he ends up delegating. Yeah. It. Right. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, would the delegation idea be that it was Thorin Gwethel who's in charge of the Island L uh, heist? It, it certainly feels like her doing like it's either a it's either a Sauron and Thorn Wethel job mm-hmm. or it's just a Sauron job and he's doing a bunch of weird stuff to get the the, the shade of Ilanel going right. or she is is running that herself and she is in fact the shade of Ilanel right um right. and if she were to attempt to perform necromancy on Gorlim and, 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 you know, like if she were to attempt to perform uh, necromancy on Gorlim, then it would be left in an open question. Did she fail because he's human or did she fail because she's not powerful enough? Right. Right. Uh, Whereas if it's, if it's Sauron, we know that answer. Right. Right. You know, 
So, by the way, I think that we can obvious. There's a there's an obvious opportunity. Just as a small side note, um, uh, there's a um, um, an obvious opportunity to integrate the deputi- the deputizing of Thuringwethel into the plot arc that we were talking about last time with Thuringwethel and Sauron. Um, her being out of the picture, otherwise occupied for a little while, and mm-hmm. then coming back and being like, okay, how's the necromancy thing going? I'm ready for my bit. And that's when the betrayal in her eyes happens, that, like, she doesn't come back and she, she's not involved in the way, you know, it, it does not pan out the way that she thought, she expected to return to something different than what she returns to. Um, that would be the obvious moment. Whereas if she's there the whole time, if they're together, I should say, the whole time, then it makes it a little bit weirder. Like, then we have to, like, explain a reason, like, why didn't she notice that Sauron was, you know, proceeding without her with, like, you know, the pot of evil plan and whatever, as we discussed last time. Um, yeah. So th- it's a little bit easier to establish the initial kind of disconnect between the two of them, which enables the gap to open and the perceived betrayal to occur, or the actual slash perceived betrayal to, to occur. Um, if... Um, if if they're separated, if they're on doing different things. So Sauron is staying home and he's doing his thing. The Sheriff of Nottingham thing, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Um, that he is made into... Cause, and I would also add this... Um, it sets up what we're going to see. Glaurung is going to establish himself as Dragon King of Beleriand. Like, his goal from Nargothrond, right? Is not just to seize the sweet treasure of Nargothrond, which is one part of the goal, right? Um, but to rule the land, like to set himself up as king over that part of the land. If we establish that idea now, right, that the bad guys are carving up Beleriand as their own uh, their own little kingdoms, um, that works for me and does definitely give Sauron reason to um, hunt down the outlaws and uh, you know, clean things up. So that works. Um, how? Um, oh, I was going to say, I really like um, Mike's suggestion here um, that uh, what if there's no necromancy involved that it's that Thuringwethel just disguises herself as Iwanel. Like it's, it's, it's it's just a it's just a it's just a ruse like that no no shades were harmed in the deceiving of this human right um that seems to me an ent- I, really the simplest way to handle that especially since we've not really made up our minds about the human necromancy question right necromancy with the elven spirits we've got gorlim there's yeah there's two separate issues here though to remember as yeah, yeah. the shade of Ilanel can be a trick. Fake. Yeah. 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 That can be faked. Um, Gorlam's ghost appearing to Baron is meant to be real. Yes. Yes. So. agree. If we're going to have that happen on some level, we'll have to treat how do human ghosts work at some yes. point. Yes. Um, but for, I agree for Isla now, it's not necessary that it be a real necromancy situation. Right. I, and my, my feeling about Gorlam is, is that given in the story that we're telling, it kind of feels like necromancy gone wrong and which is why i suggest the idea that mm-hmm. thorin mm-hmm. wethel tries to hold his his spirit there 
and it it immediately shakes loose and he it immediately goes to Baron and has a brief few moments with him before he gets pulled off to you know the 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 place that we know not where you know right right otherwise he may not have been able to do that okay here This, I think, is the biggest reason not to do that. The biggest reason not to do that. Gorlim should raise the questions in our mind at the beginning of the show. What happens to the spirits of humans after they die? Can any power, and are there any circumstances under which something unusual and funky happens to the spirits of humans after they die, right? Those questions are opened, unanswered, but opened by the spirits. There is a sense in which Gorlim's unquiet spirit is, it's it's a faint and distant anticipation, but a kind of anticipation to what happens. Like when, um, when Baron is dying um, and Luthien says to him, tarry for me, Right? We have reason to think that is possible because we've seen it. We've seen Gorlim's spirit tarry because it had something to do, right? And that's why what the, I like the idea that what is driving Gorlim, like why his shade stays, is that he has unfinished business to do, which for some reason and by some mechanism, he is given the opportunity to, to do that job. He is give like I see the 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 speaking of Gorlim's shade, right? The appearance of Gorlim's shade as an act, oh, not quite of atonement, but almost of atonement. Like I, I see a, a repentance and atonement being involved. I, it seems to me an act of grace, to be perfectly honest, that Gorlim is allowed to do what he does. He didn't have to be right. I mean, he he did a bad thing. He betrayed his companions. Like, that's very, very bad what he did, right? Um, what he does with Baron, it doesn't make up for it. It doesn't eliminate it. It doesn't make it, it doesn't, you know, wipe it out. Um, but the, like, the motivation to do it um, seems to be in the, in the, it's kind of like if you, to choose a hypothetical situation, have betrayed the central, uh, like, you know, undertaking that you were on and the central, your central quest and purpose by, for instance, trying to take a large and unspecified artifact from the person in your party who's carrying that artifact. And then you very swiftly thereafter demonstrate the repentance in your heart by sacrificing your life to try to save the lives of two other similar but different members of that same party, it suggests, such an action would suggest that, although you can't undo it, right? The damage has been done and it can't undo the greater evil that was just done. And yet it shows that, the, and I think honestly, it's, it's, it really is Boromir that makes me read Gorlim as an act of repentance and, and atonement in that way. It's not the same. 
right? It's not, it's not, there are lots of things that are different about those circumstances, but there's a kind of parallelism there um, that really strikes me. And again, I don't think it's an accident that we see the shade of a dead dude at the beginning of this story, which is going to come around in the end to be really, really focused on mortality and what happens to humans after they die. An issue which never gets raised prior to that, apart from the whole, you're an elf, I'm a human, maybe this won't pan out and it's a bad idea, you know, this relationship thing. But even that's indirect, like they don't talk about it, like, we're not prompted explicitly to think about what happens to humans after they die, except once with Gorlim. Um, so that's why I would prefer to use that as an opportunity. Now, I, I, there are some, we, we, we can try to make it do some other kinds of work, but it seems to me like that's a really important job, structurally speaking, for the whole season. Um, since at the end of the day, again, not even Morgoth is the final boss, right? Like death is the final. It's not Mandos. He's not the final boss either. But but like death itself is the final boss, right? And if at the end of the day, the release from bondage is primarily a death slash deathlessness question, right? Um, then it would behoove us, I think, not to shy away from an opportunity to really look at this. Now, the necromancy thing's already raising it, right? We already have ways, and, you know, we've got, you know, our minor character, Deadway, who's going to show up again, so we're already paving the way to the, thro- you know, to the, the halls of Mandos, right, within the necromancy subplot. So we're, we're already doing some work there, but we haven't, um, we haven't done the human mortality thing, but Gorlim gives us a chance. So there's a few questions I have. Um, One being, so my understanding is that you're, you're suggesting that the appearance of the shade shade of Gorlim be a completely unexplained event. It's not contextualized in any way other than by the events surrounding it. We don't see backstage of that. Yes. Right. We, we, don't, yes. we don't know how that happened. We don't know how. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So there's, a, there's a, a couple of issues because one of the reasons why we got to show what's going on with the elves is because, well, we're humans. We don't know that. We don't know that. I, right. would, I would say that comparatively few humans have ever been visited by the, the shade of someone they knew. A minority, I will grant. <laughs> right. <laughs> And so my concern is that we're telling, we're telling the audience, at least at this point, that this could, this could just happen. This is just a thing that could happen in our world. There, now, of course, someone might look back at the end of the scene and say, oh, it may have been Baron's own particular fate that caused this. Uh, that caused this to take place, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, Aru is is working in the background to make right. sure that Baron makes it, you know gets the inf- yep. the things he needs. He needs to get the ring of uh, of Baron here. All that right. needs to happen. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. But a reading of the season to which I would not be opposed. Uh, right. Right. Yes. Sure. Um. But we're leaving it until you know, 12 more episodes for that to, 
to resolve itself at which point the viewer may not even be think may not be thinking of Gorlum. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And again, to some extent, I don't mind that again, like I would be in theory, I would be content if this was only cool on a second viewing, basically, like yeah. it, it was only the second time through that they saw and, and saw Gorlim at the beginning. And we're like, Oh, okay. Like if, if that did happen, I wouldn't be opposed to that. But I do think we could, if we begin, if we have it happen, all we need to accomplish, all that, all that I'm arguing that we would need to accomplish through the shade of Gorlim is to raise the question in our viewers' mind. What does happen to human spirits after they right. die, right? And then all we would need in order to maintain that as a question, and again, I'm fine if it's just a question, right? We don't need to see what happens backstage because actually it's kind of better because we're going to go backstage, right? Like when mm. we get to the Halls of Mandos, right? We're doing yeah. a backstage of death thing. So not seeing that too soon, I think, is good. If instead we just build up the mystery, um, we, we do need to show that Baron himself is freaked out, right? That Baron himself is like, did that really happen? Like, I mean, he's got nobody to talk to, so it's going to be hard. But in any case, if we can somehow convey that Baron finds this strange and unusual and unexplained, right? And needing an explanation which he can't give it. Then all we need to do is ask, like, find ways to ask the question. And the relationship between Baron and Luthien does present... Again, the text doesn't take this up directly very much. But they could ask, I mean, the question could come up. Um, she's an elf, you're a mortal. What happens when you, you know, f- I mean, we're, Finrod, Finrod, yes, the philosopher the king. Yes. If anyone's yeah. going to ask this theoretical question, it's going to be Finrod, right? And they're traveling together for a long time. Like we've got plenty of opportunity for conversation between uh, Finrod and Baron where Finrod is going to be, in his tactful, thoughtful, compassionate way, asking the probing question. I mean, he's been through this, right? This is like human elf romance number two in Finrod's personal experience, right? Um, I mean, surrounding him, I mean, not him personally, right? But uh, um, this keeps happening to his friends. Uh, so he's thought through this already and therefore is the perfect person to raise this. And again, not suggesting we do Athrobeth part two. Right. In one of our episodes, but it can come up enough to just continue the question. Um, So, again, if people are still in episode seven, in episode 10, still saying, I still don't get like the reappearing dead guy from episode one. I'm okay with that. As long as in episode 11 or 12, we get there. It's not it's not just the confusion that that bothers me, though. Um, mm-hmm. because let, let's let's separate out the fact that we're adapting an existing story for a second and just take it as if someone were approaching our story as if mm-hmm. this is it, right? Mm-hmm. Could it not be considered a little convenient that the very, very, very first time we ever see a ghost in our show, it is to hand our, our season protagonist the critical information that will drive him to his, his eventual destination. Yep. yep. Right. Like that's, that's my, my biggest concern is that it's just, it it's so random and different. And when we're reading it in the story, like if you take it in the, just the Baron and Luthien story, if you're just reading the Baron and Luthien story and that's all you read, 
then right. it's not weird because you just accept, okay, so there's ghosts. This in the is story. the thing this that the happens. Yeah. This yeah. is the beginning of the story, right? And right. when you're reading it in the Cimmerillion, in the plot summary, you, you, you're like, okay, we've zoomed in on this case. This is the beginning of the story. Everything's fine. Right. right. We've never seen this before. Yeah. Um, Though in our defense, we haven't had humans around very long. Uh, that's so we haven't had true. a world of opera. But we had, we've, we've had a whole season, granted. But yeah, so... I, the uh, the mere we... convenience of it, I'm not too afraid of. First of all, because of course this happens in Tolkien all the time. Like you know, like the Hobbit is premised on it entirely. But 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 even apart from that, he doesn't come back just to give him critical information, right? Um, the appearance of Gorlim is primarily like an act of repentance. An act of he comes yeah. back to confess to Baron is what he does. He confesses, and in the context of confessing his sin, Baron gets out of him. You know, Baron is enabled to ask for, infer- you know, it's like he, he, he gains, he, he finds out the truth, right? When Gorlam says, I have to tell you, I confessed. And all he really says is, I betrayed the camp. The enemy is coming and is going gonna, is gonna to kill everybody. And so he runs back to the camp and finds everybody dead, right? Um, so, in fact, it's not even convenient in the sense of... Um, I mean, if, if he arrived just in the nick of time to warn Bari here and save everybody, then it would have been a convenient thing. But, I mean, really, at the end of the day, Gorlim's words to Baron would seem to accomplish relatively little. They get him back in time so that it's easier for him to catch up with the orcs who killed them so that he can recover the ring. But, again, it's a relatively minor thing. Like, it's not in that sense, it's not like an amazingly convenient um Oh, fortunately, he saved the day because the ghost showed up and told him. Like, he didn't save the day. Like, his dad and everybody else died. He, he arrived too late. Um, after the too late warning that the dead dude gave him. Right? So, it doesn't seem to me a huge problem that way. But, but, but I we, do understand the idea of you, if you start a story with ghosts, then people are like, oh, this is a ghost story. This is fine. Mm-hmm. And this is season six. So, it is a question mark. Yep. And the question is, have we seen characters who have died weigh in on things after their death, even if they were elves? And that answer is a little bit more like, yes, mm-hmm. a little bit. Like we've could, heard from Muriel after her death. Could we use could we use our Mando scene at the beginning of the of the season to kind of set the stage a little bit? So Mando shows up. He's got the his reboot, and we're kind of taking a little step back in time, right? Because this this scene is happening right at the end of the the Dagger Baragalak, right? Like just as as the the battle is winding down, so right. the the Reaper Reapers are gathering the um, the elf spirits, and Mando shows up to to greet them because there's so many at once and so this is a big right. deal right this is a, it's, and so he, it's a big day in the halls of mandos yeah right so he so, personally shows up on the battlefield rush hour could in the halls not, of mandos sorry go right. ahead. go ahead yeah could yeah. we not see because there are humans in that area as well could we not see human spirits and illustrate in some way that they are not part of this yeah. and that they immediately kind of yeah you know disappear into the ether and, you know, we could even possibly have our Deadway character kind of challenge Mando and say, well, what, what about them? And right. him saying, they're not my purview. Right. You know, like, that's not right. what I'm here to do. Right. 
you know. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Because um, that would at least give some kind of context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question that, although I agree with you, Marie, the whole idea of, like, elvish dead spirits potentially still being to some extent in play right within the story is a thing that we've glimpsed. Like it's not completely unknown within the plot of the story, but I agree. It's not something we've dealt with a lot. We are doing, it is a significant shift. Like we're seeing to use Gandalf's language, right? All of a sudden we're seeing things as they are on the other side in that one sequence at the beginning. Right. So we are to return to the backstage image, right? We are kind of seeing spiritually backstage in a way that we've never, that's not a thing we've ever done before. So that does establish sort of a, a you know, a trend, a theme, a concept um, that we're going to be interested in this kind of question. You know, the question about like people's spirits, especially the spirits of dead people, both elves and men, and what happens to them afterward. We are really signaling this is going to be important in this season, right? Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, Gorlim Shade shows up, nobody should be surprised now, right? Because we've already telegraphed spirits of dead people. We care about the spirits of dead people in season six, right? Season six is going to be a spirits of dead people kind of season, so brace yourself for that. Um, and then we see the spirit of Gorlim. So, but, Nick, I really like that idea about showing... Because, as you say, one of the problems with the Gorlim situation... We've never seen something like that before, but is it just because we've never seen it? Like, does this happen all the time? Um, You know, it never formed part of our story in season four, but maybe it is. But if we show on the battlefield, right, you've got our elf spirits standing there, right, blinking and looking around themselves, figuring out what's going on and trying to decide whether they're going to answer the call of Mandos, right? They're going to be human spirits too, briefly, right? We see the human spirits, and then the human spirits go or fade away or in other ways vanish, right? Like we, we see they do not linger. The human spirits don't linger. The, the elf spirits linger. The human spirits don't linger. Um, uh, so we establish the clear pattern then. And as you say, we could even, it could even be something that Mandos comments on, right? Um, you know, they, they're going, you know, uh, They've gone, uh, you know, like they've gone on a, di- on a different path. They're not, as you say, like that's not my, that's not my 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 Balowick here, right? Their um, their fate is their fate is decided by another or something. That's it. Yeah, like they, that, I, yeah. This is this is not my business, right? Um, it kind of is. Like I mean, I I know what we're trying to establish here, but I, I'm I'm challenging our I know, fake dialogue. I know. I know. <laughs> Mendes, Mendes includes dead. Humans and elves. <laughs> Sorry, my own personal bias. Uh, I um, well, like I said, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna shove the human spirits through a doorway and not let them hang out in Mandos except for Baron. Right. Like that's how we're handling this. I get it. Um, but I don't want I don't want Nama to go around saying humans not my business. That's yeah, true. Yeah, because <laughs> there is a why would he even have a doorway right if Baron is the only one to go through it. So yes. Um, uh, Okay, so what about this? You're right. All right. Anyway, and let me just... I don't want to be mysterious. I've said it before, but just to explain again. Um, human souls having hulls set apart but in Mandos is like... 
on my top five list of arguments I would have with Tolkien uh, if I met him face to face. It's when you trace it back, it is manifestly a relic of the days when he was imagined. He had this allegorical thing going on where Angband was hell, Amon was heaven, and uh, the halls of Mandos was purgatory. And he still treats the halls of Mandos as purgatory, essentially, um, for humans too. Um, separate purgatory. They have like there's the elvish purgatory over here and the human purgatory over there, and they can't send notes to each other and whatever. Um, but that humans do, that that that's where purgatory is sort of situated. Um, and uh, I I find it mythically unsatisfying um, if humans go where elves know not, except. It's just because it's through a partition on the other side of a partition that they don't have a window through. Like to me, that really ratchets down the mythic effect of departing from the circles of the world. Right. When Aragorn and Arwen are talking about death, it does not sound like we're talking about like, yes, we would be in separate apartments in Mandos without a communicating door in between. That is not the imagery that they are using. Right. You know, uh, at the end. And that like depart from the circles of the world. Like now we're talking like that is the powerful myth of human human versus elvish. Like that, you know, elves remain within Arda and the humans depart. So that have the humans depart after remaining also within Arda for an unspecified period of time, which could potentially be thousands of years. I'm just like, no, no, no. That like muddies the myth really, really badly. Give it up. Give up. The, pur- the purgatory's not here. It's somewhere else. It's okay. Like that's, this is the argument I would have with Tolkien if he and I were to sit down about this. So this is why I dislike the humans go to Mandos on purpose. And, and do a uh, do a thing there, um, but I agree. Um, I agree there. I love how Nick is interacting with the Battle of Hastings here on screen. This is this is like a reenactment. That was awesome. Um, but uh, anyway, um, the <laughs> so, but I agree. He can't just uh, like you know, show the hand to, to human spirits. He's got to collect them too. So what if this, what, 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 what if we do it this way? What if the difference is the choice, right? Um, humans, elves have a choice. They can go with Mandos or they cannot go with Mandos. Humans don't have a choice. Humans are on, they're on the, they're on the one way road out of the circles of the world, right? Um, there is a doorway in Mandos with their name on it and there's nothing they can do about it. Right. And he's going to. So instead of not collecting the Marie, he's going to compuls compulsorily collect them immediately. Right. And he shepherds them onto the, you know, onto the short bus that takes them to the door uh, in Mandos to the outer. And 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 he carts them off. Meanwhile, the elves get a choice. Right. Um, and so they're kind of taken out of the drama. But but that would establish if if they're immediately and without a choice taken off, Gorlim's lingering opens a, a question. Like, it becomes it becomes clear the reason why isn't clear, but that's okay. I think we can leave the question mysterious, but we would be establishing, Nick, one of the concerns right. that you had before. This is clearly an unusual situation. And the fact that he was betraying and is now coming back to confess and repent at least gives a glimmer of why perhaps some special dispensation might have been permitted to him in order to do that. Um, Enough to let people sort of speculate um, 
uh, speculate. Now, Mike, the answer, there's a solid and important answer to your question. If men are carted off, why does Baron linger? Because Luthien told him to. That's why Baron lingers. That's the whole point. And if you're going to tell me that Luthien doesn't have the authority to do that, I will say, but Isildur does, apparently. Why doesn't Luthien? Um, uh, if Isildur can do it to an entire nation of men and have it last for thousands of years, I think that Luthien can pull it off with her boyfriend for, you know, a couple days. Uh, so, yeah, that authority is, uh, yeah, no question. Like, I, I think it's really important that when she says, Terry for me, it, it like, that means something. That doesn't just mean, like... You know, it's not just an IOU that she's going to go and find him. Um, he responds. He obeys. Um, and is, is able to obey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, go, I, 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 seriously, Sane says Gorlem does curse himself before he dies in the Lay of Lathian. Um, yeah. Now, again, though, like uh, the curse thing, curse thing is tricky, right? Yes. Like the oath. Breakers are cursed, right? Um, but it's clearly, I, I, I say clearly, I think it's pretty clear. It's the authority of Isildur, right? He has the right to, like, he is, it's, I don't think that Isildur could do that to, like, a random group of folks, right? Like, um, anyway, but whatever, we don't have to get into it. The point is, Gorlim is a special case, and we can clearly establish him as a special case. Yeah. And, and and how exactly that happens, I don't think we need to show that at all. All that I'm looking for is to make it very clear that this is unusual. Right. Uh, because right. N- yep. without that, nothing that happens afterward will appear wondrous. Right. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And that, I think, can be, in- can be accomplished by including the Shades of Men in our behind the spiritual scenes scene at the yeah. battlefield uh, at the beginning. Um, I don't know how to do it visually. Like, I don't know what it should look like. Um, exactly. And by the way, I'm... <laughs> okay, Nick. I'm going to perversely now turn around and argue on the other side. Um, because I'm remembering our suggestion that Thurin Gwethel should be a spirit of Namo, right? One mm-hmm. of these... Uh, you know, uh, one of these Mercury slash um, uh, uh, Angel of Death characters, right? Um, uh, who admire, who work for uh, Namo and are presumably involved in the. So we should show several of like Thuringwethil's um, former associates, right? At work on the battlefield, right? Yeah. So if we've just showed Thuringwethil's former associates doing what they're supposed to do, having Thuringwethil trying to do a similar but twisted version of that is a little bit attractive. Not going to deny. I see the attraction there. It was sure. one of the reasons why yeah. I, I was yeah. leaning in that direction, actually, because I kind of yeah. foresaw that Thorne Withel may have a role to play in in, uh, yeah. in the Gorland situation. Um, yeah. But uh, well, the problem is, okay, so there are a couple of problems, though. If we establish that it is um, um, to, to use the fancy new vocabulary we were learning in the Mythgard Academy session and the nature of Middle-earth last night. If it is not an axon, that is a law, but an utan, that is 
a description of how things inevitably work in the world that human souls leave, right? It's not just that, like, they have to leave, you know, they're, like, told to leave and they obey, right? Like, it's just what happens. It's like something falling when you let it go, that human spirits immediately head out to Mandos and through the door, right? Um, If that's the case, there's no opportunity for necromancy, right? The whole necromantic situation is premised upon there are these spirits hanging out, right? Um, We can, um, uh, you know, capitalize on this situation, um, the, uh, we, you know, the, these, uh, these wandering elf spirits who have not chosen immediately to return to Mando, to go to Mandos, um, now represent an untapped natural resource that we can manipulate, right? That's the, the kind of basic premise of necromancy if we've, if we've, as we've established it. If Thorin Gwethel is going to try to apply that to humans... Like, her timing has got to be really good, right? I mean, she's got a really narrow window uh, uh, in which to, like, do the necromancy thing. And I mean, I, if she's present at his death, like, it's not like that's... And, and the whole point would be that it fails, but it does give him a few extra moments. I see, to, because to that's the part I dislike, though. That's what I dislike. Yeah. I don't want it to be her fault, right? I don't want it to be... I mean, it's like, like, oh, like, he gets what looks like an act of grace to repent and, and try to atone for his crime, but, um, uh, but actually turns out that... Funny thing is, that was actually just backfired necromancy. That yeah. uh, you know, that, that's what I. That seems to me like a huge letdown, for, like thematically, you know, spiritually, um, and that's that's what I dislike so strong. So like, I like it from throwing Gwethel's side. I hate it from Gorlim's side. Basically, well, is what I'm saying. What if what we showed was okay? Gorlim dies, and his spirit is now on screen in some format and Therengwethel makes a grab for him using whatever we've seen as necromancy stuff and he gets away like the spirit leaves so she right. she's left standing there with nothing so the it's next both. time we it's both the next yeah. time we see him Gorlam's like hey baron so sorry but i think everyone's going to die now and it's right. maybe my fault um <laughs> right right so pretty sure i so screwed that, that up back there right yeah. so like we see yeah. him seizing his moment for trying to rectify things things right even if it doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. it's not Grethel's fault that happened her attempt failed like she was unable to capture him right so right. we didn't see it's not like it's not like she left fingerprints on him that kept him from traveling through the spiritual realm so he's now like a <laughs> disabled spirit who's <laughs> right. through Gorthonian right. trying exactly. to get to Mandos a little slower than yeah. him, but like we're not going to yeah. show yeah. That. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Are we, so, do we, yeah, go like, ahead. Do we, like, um, or do we agree that, can Thurn do this with human spirits or not? Like, have we decided that? Because, you so, know, it is, like, one possibility, one version of what you guys just described is, like, Thurn Gwethel's trying to do this, and she actually can't, and the only reason it even looks like she succeeded was because Gorlim, like, stuck around yeah. with his own volition. Well, that's exactly one of the problems that I have with it is that I feel like on the one hand, again, it's really compelling that she would make some kind of necromantic attempt generally because, again, that's her thing. And especially if we've just set up um, the other, again, her, her former colleagues, right, makes all kinds of sense. But because she's a former spirit of Mandos, 
nobody would know better than she that it's not possible, right? Like, it would be dumb for her to try. Because she would know, like, especially when there's all these perfectly good elvish spirits just wandering around waiting to be harvested, right? I mean, why would you even do that? If you know that what is up with humans... Now, wait a second, she doesn't know. Because right. she How quit the she job know? before she... Right. But, but no, she would know. Because she, still, she can still see them, right? I mean, that's part of mm. the premise here, right? And so she would have yeah. watched humans die lots of times. And she would see what happens to them, right? So now... There's a way in which we could still use her, though, or still use this element, right? Um, okay, how about this? How about this? Let's set aside for the moment her actively attempting necromancy, right? We have, we've set up this moment early on the battlefield, right? In our, like, opening sequence or whatever. And we have a human dies, right? So we have, like, human bleeding out, right? Uh, on the battlefield, they die, and spirit is there, right? Briefly. S- human spirit, uh, and so that would be, a, I, I think, a pretty good way for us to introduce people to the shift that's happening, right? Is like, we, we're just seeing the battlefield, and we focus in on this yeah. human person this is, who's dying, right? This is one of the scouts that was up in the, yeah. I- in the sure. area from back exactly. in, in episode 13, yeah. and he's already dying, and we could even see an orc offing him like right or, or again he's just like you know whatever yeah. he's, he's 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 bleeding he's clearly gonna die then he dies and when he dies we see his spirit appear and when his spirit appears now we see the spirit world right now like the the viewers are shifting to, from to his perspective and when he appears there before him is one of namo's Maiar, right mm-hmm. um and she like and off he goes, right? Um, now we stop following his perspective, right? Now he exits, but like he's ushered us into this world. And now we stay in that spirit world and we pan out and we see there's others, right? Maybe we see a couple other humans appearing and being whisked off um, or, you know, vanishing. And then, but, but then we see these elves just kind of standing there looking about themselves. And that can introduce the whole that conversation with Deadway, right? But yeah. the point is, we set up a parallel, right? So Gorlim does his act of betrayal and he gets executed. And we do the same thing. We follow Gorlim, right? So Gorlim dies and then poop, there, we're there with Gorlim's spirit. Now Gorlim's spirit is standing there over Gorlim's corpse and there's Thurin Gwethel, right? And he sees Thurin Gwethel on the other side. Like one of the others, this is the way that we telegraph what, who she really is. Right. This is how we can do this without dialogue. We never have to explain her connection with Mandos because we can it can be obvious visually that she is just like that other spirit of Mandos that we saw, except she's, you know, like all evil and stuff. Um, And she sees him. But then here's where it changes. Right. We know how this is supposed to go. Thorin Gwethel knows how this is supposed to go, but it doesn't go that way. Right. She knows what she's supposed to see. She's like waiting for him to do the human thing. Right. And get like sucked off to, uh, you know, the door. Um, and I don't mean that the door in Mandos should look like, you know, the um, um, the portal at the end of that season of Doctor Who uh, when Rose Tyler gets like almost sucked through. the. It's not like that. Um, but anyway, the humans get sucked through the door. Non. 
windily. And uh, the um, and so this is what she expects. But then Gorlim doesn't leave or doesn't like get whisked off into the way. Instead, he goes out in the other direction. And Thorin Grethel would be like, the heck just happened. That is not what's supposed to happen. Like, we could use her to introduce that it was deviant. She doesn't have to be trying to do anything with him um, because she can know he's useless. Like, she's looking for elf spirits to do necromancy with. Um, but um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's workable enough, I think, at this point. We have mm. enough of the details of where we're trying to make the story yeah. go. I, th- I think it can all fit together. Um, do we, you... <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because I, I was like, if I were captioning, uh, the show, my caption there would be, you should stop talking now so that we in the writer's room can solve this problem in a much better way than yes. that without us having to actually <laughs> correct you right now. Uh, I get it. That's good. I agree. And that has that has met that approach has met with significant success in the past. So I'm fine with that. Oh, <laughs> nearly as subtle as I think I am. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, um yeah. Anyway, okay, but uh, so we as long as I just what the, the, what I think is crucially important here though again is that it should I want Gorlim's wraith's appearance to feel yeah. like Boromir's death. Basically, that's mm. that's what I'm. That's what I'm. So like, um, there there needs to be at least an element of like, no, you have triumphed, right? In Baron's conversation with Gorlim, right? Like, I, I, I that, the, and and that therefore it can't just be like a, an unforeseen side effect of a screwed up plot by the bad guys that he's able to yeah. do this. Like that Gorlim's appearance as an act of grace is all I ask basically yeah. in that sequence. Yeah. And he he gets a final act of hero- of heroism. Like it's a heroic feat of will to maintain his connection to mm-hmm. the manifest world for as long as he does. Yeah, it's not normal for human spirits to be able to remain, but when there's a reason they can. Sometimes they can. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's obviously true in Tolkien's world. When there's a reason they can linger. Um, Gorlim has a reason. Baron's going to have a reason. The Oathbreakers are going to have a reason. Everybody's got a reason, right? If there's a reason, it has to be a good enough reason, right? But if there's a reason, they can manage it. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Brian Brian is uh, is mentioning that Marie likes to apply subtext with a sledgehammer. <laughs> figured that was worth <laughs> to, mentioning to, on stream to uh, to, uh, to to right, especially to uh, to. to uh, in her defense, um, it's often the only way that subtext will get through to me, uh, especially in the middle of the conversation. So that's a perfectly uh, appropriate reaction. Okay. So I am, of course, super good at subtext. So, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> phase one and phase two. So if phase one, if so, are, are, are we agreed on the Sheriff of Nottingham thing? I like that. Are we cool with the Sheriff yeah. of Nottingham idea that, that, that Sauron is kind of given Dorthonian as a fiefdom. It's a little bit weird because he didn't, he didn't conquer it himself. Like he, I mean, Glaurung conquers it. Right. And then it's given to him. We'll come back to this when we get to Glaurung maybe, but, um, but, but he's taken Tolserion. So it makes sense. Right. Which was Finrod's, um, 
Finrod's right. uh, uh, center of power when he was the lord over the lord the of this area. Who, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so no, I, I I I like that. So phase one of the Dorthonian situation. Um, it, I, I mean, so phase one by phase one, I mean, Bari here, Baron, and the gang um, have to be hunted down. Right. That's phase one. And phase one is so going to be delegated by Sauron to Thurin Gwethel, and she's going to accomplish it by a very Thurin Gwethel-esque way, right? She gains information. She spies, right? Um, she spies. She, le- she She's the one who sees Gorlim returning to look for Ilanel and therefore hatches the Ilanel plot. She can disguise herself as Ilanel and deceive him and then kill him. And um, cool. So she can accomplish phase one almost single-handedly, right? Though she does need a group of orcs to then go in and slaughter the camp. But uh, that's the uh, transition into phase two of the Dorthonian plot, which is solo Baron, right? Baron's going to remain and be such a pain in the butt that there is, according to the text, an army of orcs that then comes in just to hunt him personally down, right? Um, Is this still throwing Grethel? Um, is she having to call for backup? Is there, is this, how do, what's the, how does that work? Well, I, I get the impression, uh, as we've been going, that Gorbal is kind of, um, in charge of Sauron's physical boots on the ground armies, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the tracking down of Barahir's band maybe a joint effort between Thorngwethel and and Gorbal, where, you know, right. Thorngwethel is the guile, Gorbal is the muscle. Um, the... As to whether Baron's one-man army thing... I, I don't think that we should have him stay in Dorthonian for very long. Yeah, I, think I our have questions about how we better. do that in any case, but yeah. Our, I think our story is better served by having him leave Dorthonian immediately. Yes. Um, just, at, like, as soon as he's killed Garbal and retrieved the Ring of Barry here, there's no... It doesn't move our plot along. So you want to cut him. phase two, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be mm-hmm. that would be mm-hmm. my preference. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, we're gonna be it's gonna be hard. I mean, we're gonna be limited for time. Uh, right. As in it the, is. the early season, we're in major yeah. trouble. Major trouble. Um, if we don't get to, you know, um, uh, Tenuviel, Tenuviel by episode what two three? I mean, we can't go that long. I mean, it, we've got we gotta get that ball rolling. Uh, so right. we cannot spend too much time in Dorthonia. No question. Yeah, there there are some challenges here with how far do we take Baron's story before he meets Luthien. Yes. And um, I think that we need at least two episodes to do whatever we've got to do with him, regardless of how much time he lives in Darthonian on his own. Like, I, I don't really see him reaching Doriath until at the earliest, the end of episode two. Episode, right, yeah. Episode three and, would be and, also the and latest. And not actually yeah. meeting yeah. Luthien until yeah. episode three. So, Agreed. Yeah, I, I think we have some stuff going on there. The problem with leaving him by himself is yeah. he doesn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. And so what he's up to and what he's doing is going to be tricky to convey. Except We're not his animal friends. So 
Right. He can have some animal friends. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the it's 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 a challenge. And then if we condense it so it's only a little piece of the episode, even if we're like, and then he lived there for four years in this one scene that we show Who you. Who cares? Like, right. it, it's hard to make it meaningful. And then yes. why does he stay there for four years and then suddenly leave Darthonian? We now have to have a whole incident that explains that. Yeah, we, we right. have a reason. That is that he has to almost get caught or something. Right. 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 Like, and that's the thing is if he, if he decides that, like, okay, I've killed the orc, you killed my dad, I'm now going to stay in Dorthonian until I die fighting the orcs who have infested this land that's my homeland, and I'm going to be here forever in the right. footsteps of whatever his ancestor was who did that, who's his, what, great uncle or who's the yeah. old guy, Bre- Bregolas. You know, he's basically like, that's the decision he's made. Yeah. And then he does it for five minutes. A significant period. Right. Yeah, exactly. But right. on screen, five minutes. On screen, five and minutes. it's like, okay, so it's actually kind of difficult. So I'm going to peace out, guys. And I'm going to go through an even more difficult area, which means he has right. to have been forced out. Right. I've got a great idea. Like, I'm going to. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So no, it's agreed. Like, right. we, we would need. We need whole stories story. to do that. And we don't have time. Yeah. Right. Agreed. Whereas having him after he finds his his father dead and he takes the ring of power here and he just goes wandering off blindly and his blind wanderings take him through Nandungrafen. He can even be forced, but if the like, so like I, so simple solution, right? Um, by the way, I was going to say we shouldn't obviously discuss this fully right now because so mm-hmm. I just want to make it clear we're not doing that. Um, but. Um, uh, it would be easily accomplished by having the orc band that killed the camp just be one of several orc bands that's pursuing him, right? Um, he overcomes that one, but then he's like, he he can still be trapped and quartered almost immediately afterwards and forced south, right? Um, or so th- or, Thoringweth- or he encounters Thoringwethel and Thoringwethel chases him off. Or something. Yeah, the, then she'd have to lose him and she can fly and it'd be hard. How's yeah. he going to evade her at that point? Maybe his animal Mars. friends. Uh, but yeah. anyway, it's fine. And yes, uh, 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 Brian, you're absolutely correct. I was imagining a Baron as Snow White sequence where mm-hmm. we can overcome his dialogue problems by having him sing songs to his little animal friends uh, in the woods. Um, it's the obvious solution. But anyway... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But we'll come back. This is not he, where we discuss Baron's story. We'll discuss he, Baron's story later. He he is the damsel in distress that gets saved by the more powerful hero over and over and over yeah, again. So yeah, yeah. Locked in a tower and then rescued. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like he's, he's yeah. obviously the Disney princess of this epi- of this season. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, really studly, manly, uh, um, with uh, uh, attractive Viggo Mortensen-esque scruff uh, uh, Disney princess. That's exactly uh, what's yep. happening here. Um, okay. Okay. Right. So, so, so yeah. We, we have things going on there. The question is what the villains are working together or not working yep. together on and who's in charge of that. Like, that's the side of this we're supposed to be yeah. sorting out. Yeah. So... If Thurin Gwethel decides to ensnare Gorlam, is it that she was in charge of the capture the band process from the beginning and that was her method? Or was Gorgol and the orcs in charge of doing it and they were failing and then so she gets frustrated with them and does it on her own? Like, how do I we think, want to I th- share I, this I, working I, together thing? I think she's in charge from, from, from the start. Um, okay. I think uh, they're blundering around, the orcs, that is, are blundering around searching and it's not doing any good. Right. They're now like then they clearly she she's the only way this is going to happen. 
And so she makes it happen Thorin Grethel style, right? She finds, she spies that information. She, you know, manipulates uh, Gorlim and gets the, and then she's able to go to Gorgol and be like, you moron, they're over here, right? Just take your orcs and go over there and kill them all now, right? That would, seems to me, just exactly how Thorin Grethel would operate, right? Um, the only thing that still feels like a little bit of a strain to me is, like, why orcs? Again, that's never been Sauron's, uh, you know, that's never been the M.O. of Sauron or his underlings. I know we've given him an orc oh. subcaptain yeah. now, but... Right, so he did work with orcs during the Dagger Bragalock, and previous to that, the setup for it was that when he um, lent out his werewolves, then there were warg riders. Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. means orcs and werewolves work together now, and... Why wouldn't the guy in charge of the werewolves also be in charge of the warg riders? Right, right. And presumably he has a um, at least a nominal amount of orcs to like back up the ghost army that assaults Minas Tirith because the right. ghosts don't actually kill anybody. He right. needs the orcs to come in and mop up afterwards. Right. So he does right. have at least a small contingent. Yes. yes. No, okay, it, it works. It works, especially if we're not showing this. This is not an army advancing across Dorthonian. These are orc uh, death squads, right, that are being put out. And, of course, Thurin Gwethel is a, a lovely person to put in charge of scattered groups of orc death squads because she can pop around and, and give them all orders, and that's all fine. So, yeah, okay, so I think we can, that, that seems, I feel good about that as a way of reconciling that. And especially if we cut phase two, it's the whole, like, let's send an army after Baron that I was struggling with most as far as that sounds like the least Sauron-esque approach to that problem I can possibly imagine, right? Um, and so again, as far as our Sauron has developed. So um, so we have no issues with that at all if we just cut phase two, which makes perfect sense, and I totally agree with that. I wonder, um, um, I wonder if you yeah. could even... I wonder if that could even happen on screen. Like, you could start planting some of the sort of, you know, the direction the Sauron storyline is going to go in, like some, some orc captain suggests going after him. Mm-hmm. And Sauron makes it clear that, like, eh, it's not really my thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so ham-handed. No style at all, right? Yes. Come on. That's, yeah. um, besides which, I mean, well, he, he's, he's trying to swat a fly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. ooh. He is. Let the spiders have him. Oh yeah, yeah. He's gonna, yeah. He's gonna. Add, and not to mention, of course, I'm thinking the, about catching the fly metaphor. and taking the sting right in the at the black gate, mm-hmm. right? Um, it would be really kind of fun to have Sauron actually deliver a line like, "When you're trying to kill a fly, you don't kill a fly, you know, with a sledgehammer," which is, of course, exactly what he's going to try to do at the Battle of the Black Gate, right? You know, so we see that. Uh, but anyway, like it's that's not how you swat a fly. Um, um, yes. Yes. Um, the fly sting thing kind of has to come in somehow, I think, mm-hmm. as an anticipation of the, Again, if there's, there's no character that we play a longer game with than Sauron, right? So setting up uh, the battle before the Black Gate, obviously, is a thing we do in Season 6. Um, okay, cool. Well, we've, I've People been like lingering on this. remember that. <laughs> Absolutely. All, all you have to do is rewatch the whole series a few times, and you'll get it. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's why this is going to be so rewarding to watch, you know, in the theoretical world in which it exists. Um, okay. Uh, so do we cover, I think we covered this stuff. Do we cover the stuff? Um, oh, what's Baron away doing? Well, hang on. Let's wait and talk about that when we get Baron's story. 
We'll say we'll save that for we'll save that for Baron. Um, yes. Okay. So we did answer a bunch of these questions, um, but we'll. Um, okay. So he's going to kill Gargol, and that's fine because we can spare him pretty easily. Gargol, the butcher. Okay. All right, so that's fine. Um, we'll f- we'll polish up the Baron story when we get to Baron and Luthien after we do the rest of this. But I think I think we're I think we're we're good. Um, Doriath. Okay. So our next villain in question is Bulldog. Let's address the Bulldog question. If we figured out Sauron, because I think we now have Sauron's whole story and Thorin Gwethel's pretty well, pretty well set. Um, Bulldog. So, pros and cons for involving the Bulldog story at all here. Um, even in the one version of Tolkien, of Baron and Luthien's story that Tolkien wrote, where it happens, it happens off stage, right? I, we just hear rumors that it occurred. So even Tolkien did not take the opportunity either to A, fully explain it, or B, depict it, right? Um, So the only pro-argument I can think of is that it gives us a chance, A, to see what some villains in the non-Sauron camp are up to, Um, like, what is God? Meanwhile, what is Gothmog doing, and what are what are Gothmog's plans? Right? It would be one question that would be answered by this. Um, and B, it also helps to occupy Thingol and give him something constructive to do while his daughter's away. Um, maybe, potentially, I don't know. Um, and don't think that's <laughs> sorry. I don't oh, think God, it's. Doesn't. I don't think it's just a matter of keeping people busy or seeing what they're up to. It also answers part of the bigger question about what is Angband's plan for Beleriand. If if you're going to just occupy Dorthonian and sit there indefinitely, that's right. not doing anything. No, so but it's showing step one. That there's, step it's one. step yeah. one, but right. showing that there what is step a two? step two. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. And where this is headed. Like, it right. threatens everybody else in Valerian to show yeah. that an orc army yeah. can just march up to the borders of Doriath. Yeah. In a way that not doing that doesn't increase that threat level. Yes. Yes. Um, I. I can see that. I'm still not 100% convinced. I'm not 100% convinced. Here's one of the problems that I have with it. One of the problems that I have with it is I really like the idea of killing Bulldog at the Fens of Serek. I really like that. I, that, I mean, Nick, that seems to me perfect. Um, to have Hurin slay Bulldog in that moment seems pretty cool. I mean, Hurin, like, it's not like you have to go far out of your way to augment Hurin's awesomeness at that moment. I mean, it's sufficiently awesome under any circumstances, but I kind of like it. Um, And honestly, we've established Bulldog. I mean, he's a second tier villain, but he's second tier, not third tier or fourth tier. Right. He's not fodder. 
No, he's not fodder. Gargol, yeah, like we barely just introduced him, right? We kill him off pretty quickly. No harm done, right? Much accomplished. He did. He served several purposes, and then we kill him off, which serves another purpose. Um, uh, and he even gets a good death. I mean, he's killed by Baron. That's a big deal, right? I mean, we making the orc who's holding Barahir's hand with the ring on it into a named character who you know we've met before and gets slain by you know the. Um, Disney princess is cool. Like that's awesome. That's, that's, um, um, and I'll stop making Disney princess jokes. I just, it's funny. I can't help but find that funny. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, the, yeah, so we've done, we've done justice to, to our, like a third tier three or tier four villain in Gorgol. Bulldog is tier two. He needs a big ending. And, a thwarted attack on Doriath just doesn't feel like it to me. You know, he is right now, he is the primary lieutenant of, of Gothmog. Right? I mean, there are the other Balrogs, right? But they're his unit, right? So they don't count separately, exactly. Um, and they're not named. And they're not named. None of them are named. Yeah, exactly. So they're lower than, they're, they're um, high-profile uh, 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 mobs, Basically, I mean, they're just they're they're, they're right. faceless. They're the, they're the they're the death troopers at the end yes. of Mandalorian yes. season two. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like they're a big deal and they're a big threat, but they don't matter. They don't like, matter. Killing Individually. them doesn't matter. No. It's there's it's it doesn't end an arc. It doesn't. There's no. Yes, I agree. Um, exactly. So Bulldog is a big deal, and when he's gone, it's just Gothmog, right? Um, so for that reason, it feels to me like the Dagor, uh, sorry, the Nirnaith Arnoidiad is almost the soonest we could possibly kill off Bulldog. Um, even killing him off at the Nirnaith or in the aftermath of the Nirnaith um, still means that Gothmog is going to be on his own for quite some time before he dies himself in the fall of Gondolin, right? But that's okay because Glaurung is center stage during that stretch, Right. So, okay, we, we have somebody else. Not to mention the fact we're going to bring in Sauron's new auxiliary squad, right? Namely, um, you know, Olfast and, and the Easterlings, right? Um, so we're going to get, um, uh, we're, we're, we're going to get some new, you know, captains to kick around. Uh, um, they're not going to be bulldog level villains, obviously. But anyway, we'll, we'll get some more yeah, named villains to play we're with. killing off plenty of named villains this season. Certainly, we don't need to make an opportunity to to kill Bulldog. The question is, are we going to show what Bulldog is doing this season so that next season when we set up the Nernite and we have his death scene, it's not like, oh, yeah, that guy. I forgot about him. Right. Right. So if we want to keep him active and involved in the story, that's fine. I don't think we need to kill him. I I think we should find a battle for him to win. Mm. Battle for him to win. We're on the bone. Wow, man. He has lost every battle that he's been in. That's he been his job so far. Off yeah. a stockade wall by, I mean, granted, two or three humans, but still, you know. Yeah, okay. so and it was Haleth, want... right? So, yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. want him to chase Baron out of Dorthonian? Yeah, but then like, we have to set then we have to set that up. Like, we're, and it complicates the Thor and Gwethel right. angle, and right, yeah, right. I don't yeah. think that works. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't think it works either. Um, and, and and 
chasing Baron out of Dorthonian while backed by large army, like that buys you no cool points in my book. However, <laughs> Bulldog, I nominate Bulldog for the captain who orchestrates the uh, slaughter of Guilin to kick off the near Arnoidiad. Right, mm-hmm. he's the guy who comes and and gets it eggs Gwyndor into charging, basically. Yep. Um, problem is, he's got to be killed by Gwyndor then, pretty much on the spot. Not um, necessarily because we Gwyndor could arrange it. Fails. Gwyndor fails, but you know he comes. Anyway, anyway I, this is totally not us talking about the Near Nighth Arnoidiad right now. But the point is, I what I'm saying is, we the Near Nighth gives us opportunities for bad guys to win battles, right? So we could give we I mean in fact it only serves to amplify the practically unamplifiable awesomeness of Hurin at the end if Bulldog is coming to the fence of Serek as practically the victorious general of the greatest victory you know ever won by Morgoth in Beleriand right uh, I mean if he and again Goth, Gothmog has a role Glaurung helps right but if we see Bulldog winning on at on multiple occasions um uh then he chases after Hurin and Hurin kills him that uh, that kind of works I'm saying I'm just saying the near knife is going to give us some opportunity I agree I like the idea of bulldog winning a battle but there's some opportunities there um but um okay uh so if he's not killed so we seem to all be in agreement that we don't want to kill him off in this season We've already killed off enough named bad guys. We need to save some. Um, and he has other work that he could definitely do. Hence, um, what then happens? So he attacks Doriath and doesn't succeed and doesn't die. So we're going to introduce this whole plot line in order to create what? A, a an an unknown battle that accomplishes nothing with an indeterminate result. I mean, that seems really unsatisfying. Like why do it? Basically I can see there. I mean, the argument that you were giving, like we need to see what step two is. I get that though. Personally, I'd be fine waiting until next season to see step two, because like, I mean, you could say step two is the establishment of the fiefdom of Sauron, right? The victory itself is step one. Right. Step two is now look at this. We're carving up Balerian. Yeah, we've only started. Wait, here's this is only step one of the carving. Right. But it's not so hard to see both that the more carving is going to come afterwards. And even if especially if there's any way we could contrive to help them to see something like the map that this particular fiefdom leaves the it you can see how easy it's going to be to carve up other fiefdoms if you can use this as the stepping stone to the rest of Beleriand, right? So um so yeah, I'm not right. too worried about step 2. Yeah, the the thing is though with roaming orc bands being kind of stupid and mm-hmm. meaningless and right. getting picked right. off by Barahir's band that doesn't look like a coherent plan. So it would be good to show them doing something. Now we don't have to use this, but if we think that Sauron would build a road to get from Dorthonian to the rest of Beleriand, that seems like a future forward planning kind of thing. Yeah. And it's a little bit more organized than just, all right, guys, get wrecked stuff. And then if you build a road, you should probably use the road to do something. Agreed. 
Like, agree. So, I, like, it was the, I, if, if they're doing something, yeah. Yeah. what's the outcome? So, I agree with that, but here is my counter-argument to doing it now. My counter-argument to doing it now is that, let me go back, as my counter-argument is suggested by the map itself. Where does the road lead? Answer, Dimbar is where it leads. If we're going to have to establish a serious and purposive um, enemy presence in Dimbar, this needs to be part of Beleg and Turin's story, not right. part, of, not peripheral to the Baron and Luthien story. Right. Because the defense of Dimbar is f- like stage two of Turin's life. Right, and right. that's where we establish his relationship with Beleg, his friendship with Beleg, and his awesomeness as a fighter. Like where he learns to fight and everything else, and 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 it, and it accomplishes something and means something in the in this. So, like, I feel like Dimbar Dimbar is absolutely a season eight thing or nine or whenever we get there. Right. Um, so for that, that's actually why I don't want to go to Dimbar because we need to save Dimbar. We can't do it twice. Right. Um, we can't have Belig and Turin defending it again or reconquering it or what you know. Remember Turin's words like they never came so far before, right? You know. Um, anyway, so I, I, I want to save, I want to save that for Turin. Um, so that's not to say that road building within Dorthonian wouldn't be a worthy thing sure. to have happening, and we could long term planning. We, yeah, we could really see the squeeze being put on Barahir's band by the kind of civilization of Dorthonian. You know, to quote Malcolm Reynolds, it's getting awful crowded in my sky. Right, right, right. right. Um, But I would also say, so long as we want to make sure that we don't underplay the strategic importance of Tulsirion and therefore of Sauron's accomplishment right. in conquering it. So I would think that we would want to primarily emphasize the route through the pass. Yes. yes the other true. route is the Dorthonian route itself is yeah. clearly plan B, right? right. You know, the right. broad road through the pass is the main, and Sauron yeah. sealed that or unsealed it, I guess it would be the better metaphor. Dorthonian breaks the nor- breaks Northern Balerion in half. That's yes. the re- that's the that's, that's the, the value. Yeah. It, the it, it prevents value the. Le- there's no way the leaguer could ever be reestablished so right. long as Dorthonian and is it held. It yeah. makes communication between East and West Balerion very very difficult. very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, Mithros can't just send a casual message out to Fingen anymore nope. because they're like they have to go all the way south around Doriath to get there. Yeah. Right, uh, exactly. Like, unless they're going to somehow convince, you know, Thingle to carry messages across for them, which I don't see happening. <laughs> right. Probably not from Mythros, no. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bing is no, writing I, I a lot of letters that he never gets responses back on. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, agreed. Agreed. No, I, I, and that's and I think that we can establish some of those things, um, and therefore, again, as you say, show that Doriath is significant without making it the highway um, yes. to the south. Tolsirian is the highway, um, uh, and so I think we need to we need to make sure to um, to emphasize that. So, okay, but again, as far as the question of what is being accomplished through it, nothing yet. Like we're just this is early days. 
right? Um, you know, we just barely started conquering Beleriand. Uh, and again, if the first thing that we're focusing on is we're solidifying, you know, we're, we're consolidating Doriath, uh, sorry, Dorthonian, um, as the this sort of new central stronghold and barrier and everything, um, I don't think we need to... Uh, uh, st- so I would... I, I'm feeling strong more and more strongly. Like I, I would just argue against an offensive against um, yeah. uh, Doriath entirely. I just don't see it having a do, good function that fits. Do we even have time for it? Is another a very really real good question. question. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think so. I think we've got plenty to do. I really do. I don't think we'll miss it if we skip it as far as the timing goes, but it does happen mm-hmm. right around the middle of the season where we could easily make time for it. To it it's especially I mean, if we don't set it up much. I mean, we don't have to go into the whole backstory all that much, but yeah. Right. It's just an attack that happens. The other thing is we should probably consider what Luthien's reputation is among the villains mm-hmm. because of what Melian's reputation is among the villains. Yes. And, if the attack on Doriath does anything to emphasize that, for instance, reminding everyone how the girdle of Melian works would have been cool before Baron went through it. But, you know, afterwards, right. it tells the, right. the villains how it works. Right. But um, no sense opening the barn door at that point or closing the barn door at that right. point. Right. Like, yeah. for our storytelling purposes, yeah. like, everyone's going to know what the girdle of Melian is yeah. from the audience yeah. point of view. But yeah. from the villain point of view of, like, how effective is it at I mean, armies out? Sauron's got a pretty good idea. Sauron knows. He like does. We set it, so, we set it up so that he, they they know. Yeah, they know. You do. Where I'm going with this is, if we wanted to do something with Luthien's reputation and Melian's reputation, then the yeah, attack on no, I hear that. Feeds I hear that, that part of the story. I hear that. We don't so. need to do it, but that's yeah. what it would accomplish. Though, to be honest, I'd even question that, um, because. If it's if, so good, why does there need to even be a battle? <laughs> why do you attack? If Luthien... Let's assume, as I would assume, that the bad guys, what they have heard of Luthien leads them to think she's kind of a big deal, right? So, rumor has it that she's on the loose, roaming around the land, Right? You're the bad guys. You hear that this kind of big deal figure is out um, roaming around without guidance. What do you do? Whip up an army and attack attack Doriath? Why? What do you accomplish then? Well, because she's not there? Like that without her there, it's going to be vulnerable? Maybe. You could play that card. But again, if it's me, and especially if I'm Sauron controlling the pass, what I'm going to send folks to do is try to capture her. This is obvious. And that would be Morgoth's play, too. Clearly, that would be Morgoth's play, mm-hmm. right? I can't believe it's like, well, Luthien's out of town, so let's get Doriath while the getting's good. Doesn't seem like the move. The move seems to be, hey, Luthien's got to be more vulnerable outside the girdle than she was within it. Let's bring her home, uh, and because uh, Morgoth is going to want to, you know, see what this is about, right? Um which, of course, is what Morgoth is thinking when he discovers her in his parlor, right? So, uh, you know, that's um, uh, that seems... So, yeah, I don't... Um, 
it, it doesn't even seem to me like a strong argument for the attack at the end of the day. Um, uh, again, it's not that it's impossible to imagine it, but it just, I, I don't find it compelling as a, as a, as a, as a reason. This does mean we don't give Thingol a heroic battle to win, but I'm okay with that. In fact, let me say this. Spoiler, because we're not talking about Thingol yet. I'm perfectly okay with Thingol looking like um, an ineffective jerk for the majority of this season. Um, I think it will serve us best. I don't want him, I don't want to redeem him early in this season. Because he's going to have a dramatic moment, right? When Baron comes and holds up his stump and Thingol relents, that needs to be a huge deal, right? And I'm fine with him being jerk, 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 jerk until that moment. And then have him, uh, and then, because then when Luthien returns and heals Thingol's uh, grief right after her death, we're going to be, like, the the, the emotional relationship that we have with Thingol has a particular shape, right? Disapprove, disapprove, disapprove. Oh, cool. He's not so bad after all. Like, he does come around. A little bit late, right? But not too late. Right, he comes around, pivots back to awesome, reasonable dad, right, and we get some reconciliation there, and then oh no, like then now his baron's dead and his daughter's dead, and it seems like it was all for nothing, and then she returns, and then we're happy that, you know, he's. But it's this like really emotionally complicated moment, and the viewers can be all emotionally complicated in their relationship with Thingol at that time too. But this is why I'm like, I don't want to redeem him until Baron holds up his stump. And, and I'm sorry, winning that battle doesn't make him not a jerk. No, like it doesn't. Being a good battlefield commander, being good in combat, does not make you not a jerk. Gothbox yeah. fantastic in <laughs> combat. Our <laughs> own great commander. <laughs> right. Kelgorm's not so bad. Kelgorm's not if, so bad either. Yeah, exactly. If you're evaluating his battlefield. <laughs> Parathir, like the list goes on and on. There are plenty yeah. of people who are great who are great to have on your side in a battle that doesn't make them nice people. Right. Exactly. And that, and that's the, the drama, like the, 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 the character arc of Thingol in this season is all about his relationship with his daughter and bear. It's all, it's all about him. It's just the three of them. Nothing else about him matter. Okay. Million. She matters. But like the four of them are the only thing that matter as far as Thingol's character is concerned in this season. And I think we need to focus on that. And so him on the battlefield, would just be a distraction. So I vote Bulldog off the island unless we want to give him a bit role in I mean, like we can put him to sleep in 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 Angband or yeah. something, you know? Um Yeah, we don't need to forget he exists, but Right. He's been in enough stuff that he we don't need to give him something to do for the audience to remember who he is. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it's getting a little bit late for introducing a new topic. So, and I think our next topic is that's what I thought it was the dragon. Let's save the dragon. It's not, this is, it's too late to start a discussion of the dragon. So we'll uh, lump that into next time. So, questions moving forward. Our first one shall be 
what do we do with the dragon? How do we get him out of the castle? And what is exactly he going to do with himself in between the two battles? Um, and therefore, how can we get him into that without giving him giving him as little screen time as possible because this is not a dragon story, right? Indeed, I think if we could cut Glaurung's time on screen in season six to zero, that would be optimal, frankly. Um, but we do need to establish, we, we do have to some, do something with him. So we got to figure out Glaurung in some ways, right? Um, let's, so we figure out the, the Glaurung problem, and then our next questions after that shall be, we got Nargathron, now we've kind of talked about Thingol, but we can talk, we, we, we do have a long period of time in which he's sort of in stasis. So we do need to think about that a little bit more. Um, so my questions are, how does the usurpation go down at Nargathron? We need to, we need to think about that a little bit more. Kelgorm and Kurafin, how do we get from them, their arrival to, we talked about what brings them there, um, but um, seems a long way to go to the people of Nargathron kick Finrod out on his ear. So, like, how do we get there and how do we handle that and make that compelling in the shockingly short amount of screen time we're going to be able to give to that plot? Um, so we need to think about that a little bit. Then the Thingol question, what's Thingol doing while his daughter's out and about? And then also the dwarves are probably doing something. I wonder what they're doing. Um, uh, we've been trying to follow the dwarves. Uh at least keep tabs on them so that we're not shocked when they show up again. Um, is there anything that we can do, want to do? Um, we do at least, we're talking about the Nauglamir in this uh, season, so we have that angle. Um, so um, anyway, that that's just, I, we need to think if there's going to be anything else that we're going to do um, with um, uh, with the dwarves in this season. And I think... Once we get through those questions, we'll be ready to go back to Baron and Luthien and think through their plot line a little bit more, you know, make sure that we have a pretty clear idea of the shape of that and how we're going to handle that. Um, and, um, and then we can, uh, uh, then we'll be on the, in the home stretch of our, uh, of our, 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 our early, uh, our, our preseason discussions here. Um, okay. That good? Any questions? We're set? All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, fun, spirited discussion this evening uh, as we uh, uh, accomplished some more stuff, made some controversial decisions, perhaps. Um, uh, but um, uh, but I, 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 I'm, I'm happy with the decisions that we've made. So I hope that you're happy too. If not, why not go to our discussion boards and tell us all about why you're unhappy? Uh, or even better, tell us about why you fully support everything that we're planning, because that is the even cooler thing to talk about. But anyway, um, you're welcome to come to forums.signumuniversity.org. You can find the film film uh, uh, sessions and the season five sub forums within there to, uh, uh, to talk about these things. We will be back on Thursday, February 10th at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.